Welcome to Oh God, What Now? The Garden Mouse in the Shed of Politics podcast, tidying up the mess for everyone else. <laughs> I'm Ross Taylor. On today's show, after the scandal of the post office IT system, what other outrages has the state chosen to ignore? Plus, why is the government so keen on North Sea oil? And why are there still no more onshore wind turbines? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, aside from a few positive democratic changes, hopefully, we'll discuss the things worth looking forward to in 2024. Let's meet the panel. First up, it's commentator Alex Andreu. Hello, Alex. Hello, Roz. As we all know, Keir Starmer used to be Director of Public Prosecutions. But before that, he was a barrister. And The Sun has discovered this week that barristers sometimes defend criminals. Astonishing. <laughs> Harry Cole, who used to go out with Carrie Johnson, I'm sure that's no, got nothing to do with it, uncovered this extraordinary scoop with the headline, Baby Killers and Axe Murderers Saved by Starmer. Can you fill us in a bit more on this, Alex? Do I need to? Yes, you do. <laughs> I mean, the story's utter nonsense on every conceivable level. Not only because Starmer was just doing his job, not only because the implication is that these people went free when in reality Starmer was working pro bono to save them from being executed. Um, the abolition of the death penalty, by the way, in Commonwealth territories was and remains government policy. And also, it seems, the Sun's position. Because <laughs> uh, they say in that, in that piece, we don't support the death penalty in this country. But what business is it of his to go gallivanting around Africa and the Caribbean? Which brings me to the other point. It's just a profound misunderstanding of our legal system. Like, first of all, the, many of those countries' final court of appeal at the time, certainly, whether House of Lords or Privy Council, was in the UK. You know, he didn't go gallivanting anyway. It's usually a British barrister that, that uh, adjudicates those cases. Hence the government's mission to have the death penalty abolished in Commonwealth territories because they're linked into our legal system. But also it fundamentally misunderstands how a British system works, which is adversarial. You literally need two sides. If, if the defendant cannot find a, a, a decent lawyer to defend them, then they win. <laughs> it's a mistrial. It's that blatant. Um, so unless the son wants to campaign to move on to the the French system, for instance, which is inquisitorial, because those are the two alternatives, right? You either have the two sides battling it out, or you have an officer of the court that kind of researches everything and lets the court know. Mm. Um, but even then, of course, you know, you the even in, in, in decadent France, the defendant still has some lawyer to represent oh, them. Of course, <laughs> yeah. of course, you get yeah. advice. But what I mean is the person that communicates with the court is a sort of advocate that gives the judge the the position on the conflicting law. Um, so, I mean, it, it really isn't worth commenting on, except, except I think it reveals a sort of absolute desperation by people like Cole and The Sun and Hope at GB News and Calgary at Express and even Coates in Sky, I would say, who seem to me part of a really coordinated attack on Starmer now that is intensifying. And there's another case of it today, by the way, connected to PMQs. Maybe we can talk about it later. The polls don't seem to be moving. 
And I think those whose careers depend on partisan access to number 10 are shitting themselves. I really do sense that there is a, a, a coterie, a cadre of journalists whose access depended not on the organization they work for or their skill as a journalist, but on the fact that the Tory government knew they would report things in a friendly way to the Tories. And if the Tories lose, that access goes away. And I think they're really panicking. Yeah, in fact, the polls are actually widening again, I think, after a bit of a blip before Christmas. The latest one, yeah. Yeah. Hannah Fern is a journalist who specialises in social issues. Hello, Hannah. Hi, Ros. Tube drivers were going to walk out for most of this week, but at the last minute they canned the strike because the London Mayor Sadiq Khan found some more money. The right-wing press warned gravely that this was a sign of things to come under a Labour government when unions would get their own way all the time. Well, better transport. <laughs> <laughs> I should hope People so. People being able to be paid for their work fairly. God, what a world. No not, strikes. Yeah, I'll not, go with that. Not the point, guys. What's, what's really going on here, Hannah? Well, the RMT managed to secure this £30 million pay deal, which uh, did avert the strikes that were on coming this week. And then there's an additional element to this story, which is that ASLEF, one of the other unions that represents drivers on the uh, TFL lines, um, rightly queried the previous argument that they'd heard from City Hall that there was no more money left and they settled for around 5%, which is less than this RMT deal. So they then challenged for more and are likely to get it. And Sadiq hasn't given a clear figure on that, but he has indicated that the, all the unions will be uh, included in, in this updated deal. Um, so that package is, is signed off. Um, what's going on more broadly, and, and these ridiculous attacks on, oh, you know, welcome to the world of Labour, TfL and City Hall have always been far more pragmatic than the government in their negotiations with rail and transport unions. They just understand that London can't work without its transport and that London transport workers deserve to be paid fairly, especially in the cost of living crisis and so on. You might not have noticed that the Elizabeth Line was never part of these strikes that were supposed to be going on this week as we record, in fact. And the only reason I'm here in the actual studio with you all is because they're off, so that's that's a good thing. Um, The Elizabeth Line was never included because their deal when they got the line going when they opened it, was agreed all behind closed doors before it even opened its gates. And there was a a, a real pragmatism there among everybody involved, including central government, including the Department of Transport, about making sure that this didn't happen on the Elizabeth line, that everyone was happy with the deal. And so, you know, the government know when they need to do these agreements too. They are just taking the piss out of most unions in this country at the moment for political gain. So... You know, Labour are more pragmatic on this. Um, is it a sign of things to come? I hope so. Let's get things on the table and actually negotiate and remunerate fairly. Can I th- say just two sentences on something? Because it occurred to me yesterday as I was watching the story unfold with these doors that are falling out of the Boeing airplanes <laughs> yes. um, and the fact that staff at the factory apparently had warned that this was going on, but where penalized by management. And it occurred to me that the point that is rarely made in this country is that strong unions have more than a function of representing their members, right? They also enable whistleblowing on safety Mm. issue, and they are a vital, vital part of public safety. 
Um, and this is something that's never raised, and I think it should. Mm, good point. By now, we've all heard about the post office scandal. It took 25 years, the suicides of at least four postmasters and the convictions of 700 others. But the ITV drama Mr Bates versus the Post Office finally galvanised the government into action. Rishi Sunak has said there will be new primary legislation to exonerate the people who were convicted and some of them will get a £75,000 payment up front. Under the plans, victims will be able to sign a form to say they are innocent in order to have their convictions overturned. It's not the first time a TV drama has cut through with the public when journalism didn't. Ken Loach's Kathy Come Home did the same for homelessness in the 1960s. But the problems with Fujitsu's Horizon IT system were already apparent in 1999. Hannah, it's notoriously difficult to quash convictions without going back to the courts. Is the government's new move the right thing finally to do? It's definitely the right thing. And it's obviously a difficult one because it raises that question about the independence of the courts, as you said. But it's obviously the right thing morally. Um, The interesting thing is that exoneration and acquittal of a conviction are kind of two separate things. Mm. It was very easy for the government to just exonerate by passing some, you know, statement almost. And um, but actually being absolved from blame is not the same as publicly stating innocence by removing the claim of the crime in in the first place. And that's an incredibly important part of this. And that's why it's so essential that it does go ahead and quickly. Those convictions must be completely overturned. It, It doesn't matter how much that costs. It doesn't matter the legal arguments that will follow about the role of the courts, it must be done. And as you said, lives have been lost over this. So that's really significant. I noted today that the business minister who has responsibility for the post office, Kevin Hollenrake, said that the compensation agreement that the government is now pulling together could lead to some people involved with the post office fraudulently claiming compensation. Now, if that is the case, he added, incidentally, that this was a price worth paying for the scale for the, of the problem, and I agree with him. If that it really is the case, if we really think that there's going to be a major fraud scandal here additionally, that is a very depressing thing. I actually think that this has been mentioned by the government because of the level of fraud over the uh, COVID um, scheme, uh, where people were able to find ways to demonstrate that they were furloughing workers they weren't and so on. I think it's really cynical of Hollenrake to suggest that there will be the level of abuse of that scheme that there would be over something like a system which I think most people felt that the government was, you know, uh, pulling together at the last minute with with fewer, with little oversight, and you know there was all the opposite to lockdown, uh, opposition to lockdown and everything, and so on that came with it. There was a cultural issue around lockdown. I I would be very surprised if we actually do see any fraud on this. There so, can't be that many postmasters and mistresses who are in a position to commit the, the yeah, fraud. Are I they? also think it, that it's another level of moral depravity that's cynicism. well beyond, mm, yeah, mm. and cynicism that's well beyond what we've seen on other schemes. Mm. So. I really thought that was a, I was a bit sad to see him stand up and make that point as if, I don't know, did it need to be said there and then when we're actually talking about people yeah. who've suffered so much? Yeah. That there might, you know, <laughs> oh, by the there way, might we, be some dodgy ones yeah. among them. I mean, that kind of seems to give and take away. Um, Shami Chakrabarti put the difference between a pardon and a quashing of a conviction very well, I thought, today. She said that 
pardons are given, for instance, to people who are convicted for homosexuality-related offences, when a person is justly uh, convicted under an unjust law, but when a person is unjustly convicted under a just law, like fraud, mm. then what what is needed is a quashing of the conviction. Exactly not right. a pardon. Yeah. They're different. Yeah, it's an interesting distinction, isn't it? Yeah. Alex, why did it take so long to get to grips with this scandal? Because we've had seven prime ministers in this time. Um, so many reasons. I mean, it's it's gone on f for so long. I literally remember Lily waving the card at Tory conference in the mid-90s that would replace the benefits book, which is the the thing that got this whole thing Rolling, incidentally, that's when they went out to find a contractor to install a computer system that could administer an electronic system of benefits, basically. I think there are many reasons that Royal Mail is, is trusted and it was seen as part of the crown. You know, it's a trusted brand. That IT systems are trusted, generally speaking. And that's even reflected in the law, which I didn't know until I started looking into this case. Up until 1984, a company had to show that its computer records were accurate. After 1984, PACE, uh, the PACE Act introduced a presumption that computers are working What's correctly. What's an apt date? Right. <laughs> um, yes. But it introduced that this presumption that computer evidence is accurate and reliable and the burden shifts to a defendant to show that it's not. That is maybe something we need to revisit. Mm. I mean, the case is complicated and not sexy enough for front pages. It doesn't summarize well. You know, it took ITV four hours to tell this story. I think racism... I remember when I first started covering this, the mix of people being convicted was hard to ignore. But you never know because certain groups may be overrepresented among the sort of business that becomes a post office branch. So you think, you know, but seeing some of the stuff coming out now about what the chatter was about them within the post office and within Fujitsu, it's hard to avoid that implication that if this was happening to a a lot of, you know, upper middle class white people in shires, it may have been looked into a lot sooner. But I think most of all, because, and, and we mustn't obscure this, we, we should look to politicians and people in positions of authority for not doing the right thing sooner. But we really mustn't obscure the fact that Fujitsu and the post office hid the extent of the problem. They went to incredible lengths to isolate people, to tell them that it was only them, no one else was having a problem, they lied to the authorities about it. They were the only ones in a position to know how many of these cases were coming through their legal department, right? And they engaged in, I think, the very definition of gaslighting, they they really gaslighted these people. They went, no, you're crazy. It's all in your mind. You're the only one that has a problem with this. Um, and, and it's actually, nothing to do with it. And actually, that is something that probably couldn't happen now. With social media maybe, and yeah, maybe. WhatsApp groups and so on, there would be it's a way of people finding each other. It's possible they would have found each other. other. Yeah. Yeah, my, my and, and that's a great thing, actually, mm. about the power of 
you know, social True. networks. True. I found myself wondering why the Postmasters Union didn't actually work on, you know, get this sorted out earlier. It's, uh, I don't know why, don't and know. there may well be a good explanation, but it's somewhere where, sadly, a union has failed to, mm. to yeah, blow the whistle on what was going on. Um, Alex, you spoke to Hannah Quirk, who's a lawyer for the Postmasters, for the Bunker podcast. She's not a lawyer for the Postmasters, she's a barrister oh, right. that is... Um, an expert in miscarriages of justice. Yeah. That's the area she works in. And she's actually um, a contributor and sabbaticals, Justin Quirk's sister. Ah, <laughs> it's all in the family. It's yeah. all in the family, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What did she tell you? Um, a lot. I mean, three big points emerged from me that have really stuck in my head. The first one is how much further it goes from those criminal cases. And that is something that hasn't been addressed today. There were civil cases. There were people who pled out. There were people who ruined their finances to borrow money to pay back funds they had not stolen in order to avoid prosecution. So it goes much wider than the 700 and something that are being addressed by this, right? There are many, many more who will have had to pay back amounts ranging in size um, that weren't prosecuted and um, they will need redress. The, the second thing I think is the incredibly insecure making fact that it could happen to anyone. I, I did the first interview with Hannah during one of the lockdowns and it really struck me, you know, because we had signed away an enormous amount of personal freedoms to the state. And the dummy that we suckle on for comfort is the idea that unless you've done something wrong, the state ain't going to turn against you, right? Mm. And it, it does. And in this case, in their hundreds, it turned against people really the whole might of that machinery against them. And it could happen to anyone. And and I think this is the problem with a toxic tabloid narrative about, for instance, defense lawyers, mm. you know. I mean, the Sun and the Mail are campaigning for justice for these postmasters yeah. at the same time as berating lefty lawyers for defending criminals, which these people were considered for two decades, by the way. Mm. And mm. but for defense lawyers working night and day, they would never have been exonerated. Enemies of the state, yeah. exactly that. And the ECHR was used in many of these cases and the Criminal Cases Review Commission, which they always berate as a body set up to get criminals off. And so I think that needs to readjust because we really do need protection from the state when it gets it wrong. And the, the third point that really sat with me is sort of sits outside this, and it's a systemic point about how government became so accustomed to contracting everything out, to farming every bit of expertise out, that it didn't retain any expertise internally that could basically uh, um, quality control the product they were getting. If you contract every single IT thing out, 
and you have no IT experts in your procurement department, they genuinely do not know if the IT company that they're employing is talking shit to them or if there is a genuine problem or if it's all, you know, suddenly some crime wave sweeping through post previously honest postmasters. And that th- that really struck me as a point, actually, because it is something that we can resolve, that we can make better and quickly. The post office scandal isn't the only time, sadly, when the state has failed to own up to its mistakes, and sometimes politicians are still dragging their feet. A couple of months ago, I did a bunker about the infected blood scandal, where haemophiliacs were given HIV and other diseases through NHS-approved blood. I found it hard to believe just how callous public authorities were in the 1980s, and the efforts to postpone paying out to these people now are just as shameful. Let's talk about some of the other scandals that don't get a lot of airtime. Hannah, it's seven years since the Grenfell fire, so you'd think all the flammable cladding had been removed from blocks of flats by now, you'd think? You'd think that, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah, you would. <laughs> In fact, uh, a fifth of London's high-rise still have Grenfell-style cladding. That's about... One in 10 blocks nationally as well, so it's higher density in London than elsewhere, but nevertheless, national problem. Residents who are still living in those properties, which still have the dangerous cladding, describe it as mental torture. I mean, it it must be. You've seen the images of everybody trying to escape Grenfell and the the dreadful pain, and to to know that could happen to you at any point. Uh, And then to know as well that the, the firefighters are still in no better position to deal with it if it did. Then there's also the added situation that homeowners who are leaseholders in buildings like those, because not all of these, by the way, that remain are council or housing association homes. Some of these blocks are private or student lets and so on. Um, In fact, the public sector has been much better at getting it rid. So councils and, and so on have been much quicker at stripping it. So a lot of these are private. They've had their assets destroyed by this. They can't sell. They can't until it's done and they're dragging their heels over and getting rid of it. They can't insure properly because of the fire risks. They can't rent it out because people don't want to live there partly, but also because of the ridiculous additional costs around service charges and so on. Now, the government has made sure, and this is obviously right, that leasehold owners will not be responsible for paying for cladding removal because it's not their fault. Uh, And so they won't get hit for that. But they are hit for a bunch of other costs that come in because of the scandal. So a lot of these buildings that still have it have things called waking watches. So 24-hour supposedly wakeful security guards to make sure that if there was a fire that that it's responded to immediately and so on. But anecdotally, I've spoken to tenants and, and residents of these buildings who say that there is no waking watch. There's people who are basically asleep on a reception desk, not doing anything at all. Mm. And, and yet the people who are owners in those buildings are paying really high service charges as a result of, of this requirement to provide it for, for insurance purposes. So it's a complete scandal that's, that is ongoing. The other thing that goes undiscussed mostly in this sort of post Grenfell investigation into cladding is that there were far more failures found than other than just combustibility. Combustibility was one issue, mm. but the whole cladding system was defective in in many, many dangerous ways that are, we haven't got time for me to go into in loads of detail now. But Pete Apps, who friend of the show, has written a book on, on Grenfell. He's written about this in some detail. But the final effects of all this are a long way off being felt because there will be things that come to, come to the fore that aren't just about um, combustibility. At the moment, it's only the combustible cladding that's being stripped. 
And I think we're going to end up in 10 years' time with saying, why didn't we strip all for billions of other reasons um, that's to do with safety, just different safety issues. And you can't help wondering how many MPs actually live in high-rises and therefore well, have any idea what it's yes. like to worry yeah. about and, her, and dying in a fire in a And in you a can't help wondering whether it will take another bunch of people to die. Yeah, or, or, or face up. Because yeah, that's exactly. what it feels like, right? Yeah. Yeah. It feels like another disaster could happen any day and then maybe something will be done about it. Alex, the last Labour government brought in something called imprisonment for public protection, which is an extremely misleading phrase. In effect, this was an indefinite sentence and they were abolished in 2012, but the, crucially, they were not abolished retroactively. What does that mean in practice? I mean, former um, Lord Justice Brown, the late Lord Justice Brown, I should say, I think he died last year, um, described IPPs as the greatest single stain on our criminal justice system. And I tend to agree. These are outrageous in instruments. They were brought in for very specific reasons, terrorism, stuff like that. They were essentially the British government's equivalents of Guantanamo Bay. That's what they were meant to be, right? Where you could stick someone, basically, and... Terror, terror yeah, suspects. And if you want, like, keep renewing it, unless you were absolutely sure they represented no threat. But then they started being used much more widely, and David Blunkett, who introduced them, has accepted they're a disaster. They were never meant to be used in that way. And so you have a number still um, 2,909 IPP prisoners of whom more than half, 1,597, have been recalled to custody because that's the point. You can be recalled at any point, not for committing another offence, it can be for anything. People have been recalled into custody because they've talked to their doctor about having suicidal tendencies. People have been recalled into custody because they've missed an appointment with uh, like a, a sort of parole type mm. person. Um, there is, you know, one prisoner um, caused a fire in his own cell while serving a prior tariff of two years was sentenced to an IPP and has now served a total of 14 years in custody. There is someone who stole a mobile phone in 2012, four months before these uh, sentences were abolished. And he has been in jail ever since, after initially receiving a, a minimum um, tariff. And his family say that, and this is the the thread that you find through these cases, that these people's mental health deteriorates to such an extent that they end up in and out of the system because they suffer from psychosis, they, you know, they can't get a job, they can't get their life together, they can't get accommodation, there is no help for them. I mean, this is just an outrageous thing for a, a, a civilized country to be doing to people. It is literally the definition of cruel and unusual punishment, especially for such minor crimes. And it's been 12 years since they've sentenced to abolish, but still nothing has been really done about yeah. it. And, and you just have this revolving door, Do you know, door, I didn't like even I said, know about it. It's, I mean, it... As someone who watches these kind of things closely as it's well. It's just extraordinary. And especially, you know, considering we have a 
problem with prison places. I mm. mean, you know. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it needs to be solved. Hannah, you've been following another case of the state locking up people indefinitely, but for different reasons. Mm. Tell us about that. This is actually, it's very similar, but different, actually. So there are hundreds I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it turns out to be over a thousand, actually, but definitely hundreds of profoundly disabled people being held indefinitely under the Mental Health Act, which is supposed to be for their safety and often their family's safety and so on. But the law was not designed for disabled people. It's designed for people suffering things like psychosis or extreme, you know, emotional breakdown who need short term support. It's not designed for people that it's being used against, like people with profound autism and other learning disabilities. So these people are often being um, detained, sometimes indeed with criminals in prison, because there is no suitable community service to support them and their needs. So if they have such significant uh, you know, disabilities that they need permanent support from a good social services system that can respond to every kind of uh, condition, we don't have that right now. So we end up with this kind of vicious cycle of detention and seclusion, often people being you know, kept in, in solitary confinement, which is itself a punishment, and these people have done nothing wrong. They are not criminals. They've never committed any criminal act at all. And what you see is worsening behavioural symptoms, which leads to the Mental Health Act being used against them again and again and again. A very um, similar situation. Very similar. So there's a, there's a guy called Adam Downs. He's being held indefinitely at Rampton in Nottinghamshire, which is a high security unit, which also houses other people who ha- have severe mental health issues, but indeed are also convicted paedophiles, murderers and rapists and so on. And this is just a, a lad, it weighs now a bit in his 30s actually, who has significant learning disabilities and autism. He went missing at 15 and the police sectioned him because he reacted erratically when he was found. Mm. And he has now spent, he's now about 32, I think it could be 33, in fact, I'm not sure when his birthday falls. He has now spent more than half his life locked up in various secure units. And his mother, who's a woman called Alison Rogers, who campaigns uh, on behalf of all people facing this, she's been desperately trying to get him out. She describes regularly to the press how she, he's distressed and scared and she was told it would be six months when he was 15 for his for her support mm-hmm. and his and he's never been released and he's he's one of hundreds uh, what a way to treat the most vulnerable people in our country and indeed the desperate families who can't get their children their yep. brothers their siblings yeah. out and there's case after case after case. There's a few journalists who are following these, but, they, but you find often their work is on, sometimes it's in private eye, but often in blogs and things because yeah. mainstream publications are not following this up. Uh, so, I mean, I've, I've, been, I've been looking at this. I mean, I've not been covering it myself, but a couple of my colleagues have been covering it. And, um, yeah, I, I, it's just, it beggars belief. I, I can't believe that we live in a country that does this to people. Mm. But we do. And these people, of course, don't have a voice. Really no, no in. voice. And But even though yeah. their parents do or their siblings do, apparently we just ignore the voices of those who seek to support their loved ones. Often it seems to take a charismatic campaigner, and it is, as you say, often a relative, to get people's attention in cases like this. You know, someone like Doreen Lawrence first after Stephen Lawrence's murder. Mm. Idris Elba has been talking about knife crime this week. Do you think that will make, uh, make a big difference? I found the coverage of the Idris Elba stuff really quite tough to read because it focused largely on him as a celebrity and, you know, his Mm. excellent statements that he made on it and his function as a role model, which I don't think is insignificant in terms of, you know, young black people in in London and so on. Um, 
but it com- they mostly completely failed to do any kind of deep dive into the data. So I didn't come away with any understanding of exactly where we are with knife crime. Actually, I looked around a little bit myself and found that knife crime has not risen to pre-pandemic levels. That's something we should be quite happy about. It's not good. It is still mm-hmm. increasing at the moment, but it hasn't yet got back to where it was before the pandemic. So maybe there's something that we can do. None of it covered that. Do I think that it will work? I mean, possibly. We've definitely seen how stardust... But actually, just thinking about it, the post office scandals, the fact that yeah. a glossy ITV drama comes along and suddenly we're seeing uh, attention. You know, the, yes, yes, this went uncovered for years and years, but about four years ago, there was a full length book written about the post office scandal and the government didn't seem very bothered about doing anything then. Also, not that long ago, we had Jamie's school dinners and so on, and that did actually make a difference. So um, I hope so. I think it would be great if it did, but. Um, it's sad that him talking about it doesn't actually make people talk about the real issue. It makes them talk about him. Now, time for a question from a Patreon backer in But Your Emails. Remember, back us on Patreon and you could ask your question too. This week, Sebastian asks... The second series of The Traitors is now airing. It's my escape route. I think it's great and I hate reality TV. (laughs) The Traitors is a lot like the game's Werewolf or Wink Murder, but for money. Who out of the cast, past and present, do you think would make for a good traitor and why? If you were a traitor, which of the cast would you fear most and why? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, past and present. Um, Alex, I'm just going to throw to you for a moment to explain exactly what the premise of The Traitors is, because you've watched an episode, haven't you? Yes. So, yeah, um, with much eye-rolling and begrudging Um, I decided everyone's talking about it. I'm not going to be able to avoid it. Um, And I might as well try and get into it now that there's only three episodes of it, basically, which means I could reasonably catch up. Um, And it is incredibly addictive. So we watched like two episodes back to back. The premise is very simple. Basically, you've got a bunch of people that uh, get together and they have to do physical tasks a la crystal maze type stuff in order to add money to a bank. But among them, there is an undefined number of traitors or, you know, people who basically get together every evening and decide who they're going to kill. Right, so they know who each other is. Yeah, but they know who else, each other right. is, but nobody else does, and they don't know how many there are, right. which is quite, I think, quite a, a, an yeah. elegant twist. And the twist viewer does know. To the game, yes, the viewer does know. Um, uh, and so they get together every night and decide who they're going to kill, and, and the others try to weed them out, but if they get the wrong person, they might end up basically send, sending packing someone who's actually their ally. So the traitors try and sow distrust while seeming very trustworthy themselves. <laughs> yeah, this does. I can see why they pillar this. I think Naomi would be a really good traitor. Oh my God, Naomi was literally my <laughs> she choice. She totally I think would. she could yeah. buy us and sell us and no one would know. I'll tell you who I think would be good. I think Jarf would be really hard to read. He's just yeah. friendly, yeah. quite gentle. I have no idea what he's thinking at yeah, most times. True. True. Yeah. So I think that he, I wouldn't be able to tell. I don't agree. I, can't, I, I think Jar would be 
crushed by shame. <laughs> I, do, I really do think that. Couldn't live I, with the moral responsibility. Yes, I, I, I think he would be like he would be a fierce opponent in poker. Say, I mm. do agree that he's he's not easy to read. But I think in a situation like this, where he was actually shafting people he liked, <laughs> I genuinely think he would be Undone. absolutely <laughs> coming apart at the seams <laughs> from just the shame of doing it. Whereas Ian would be crap at this game. Wouldn't he? <laughs> he would he would be really bad at it. He would just he would just dissolve into hysterical laughter. Yeah. Yes, like <laughs> Ian would probably reveal it. When he's, so he was made. This is maimed. why I would be a useless traitor. I'd just tell someone about three minutes in. I, I have absolutely no. Because that might be a double secret. bluff, you see. Well, but, but with me, I, it wouldn't be. I'd just let it go and then think, I hope they'd read it as a double bluff. I think they have an interview with Claudia Winkleman before hand because you see snippets of it mm. and they say whether they'd like to be a traitor and whether why they think they would make a good traitor. Mm in that chat. So I don't think she recruits people that go, I absolutely would hate it. I don't want to be that. I would be oh, interested. Yeah, you've got to have a certain amount of, you know, narcissism slash sure. uh, psychopathy to, to really excel at this <laughs> game, uh, have this, you? Is, this is not sounding very good for Naomi, though, does it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I if Naomi's listening, I'm going to clip that's this. not what I'm I, going to clip this <laughs> That's one. not what I mean. I will make sure she listens. <laughs> so who would be very good at weeding out the traitors, which was the other leg of the question? I think you would, Ros. Would I? Mm. Mm. Yeah, I am, I I'm think, not too bad at weeding out dodgy quite, people. I think you're cynical enough to <laughs> yeah. just not trust anyone. No, I don't already. Actually, I know, I know I've just written a book true. about trust. So, mm. you know, and, Have um, you ever played poker? No, I'm, uh, these card games, um, you know, they, they, they confuse me enormously. But I've often liked the idea of playing poker. Yeah. Uh, it's the kind of thing that would appeal to me, absolutely. Yeah. And I can yeah. see that. Ros versus Naomi. I think that would be a proper Godzilla versus Mothra type situation where you just go, let them fight. <laughs> Rishi Sunak doesn't have to wait long for his first by-elections of the year. Last Friday, Chris Skidmore, who's the MP for Kingswood in Gloucestershire, resigned. He said he couldn't vote for the government's offshore petroleum licensing bill. That's the plan to max out North Sea oil and gas. The former COP26 president, Alok Sharma, doesn't like it either. He said he wouldn't vote for the bill either and that he'd resign the Tory party whip. He told Politico, we simply do not have any more time to waste promoting the future production of fossil fuels. The vote was going to take place this week, but in a pattern you'll have noticed, the government decided to kick it to next once it realised people didn't always <laughs> like it. Yeah. Alex, what does the bill actually do? Because Sharma claims the government can already issue new licences if it wants to. Well, he's right, sort of, and he's not. So the, there's the North Sea Transition Authority. What, what glamour. <laughs> um, <laughs> is able to issue licenses for fossil fuel exploration where they deem it necessary. Um, That's an elastic phrase, isn't it? Isn't it? Necessary. Yes. What is necessary? Uh, well, but I think the point is, is that if they started issuing new licenses willy-nilly, there would be some kind of judicial um, review, right? Yeah. You know, about how necessary really all these new licenses are when we're trying to transition to net zero. It's so those lawyers again, so isn't it? So he is right that government already has the power 
to do what it is doing if it is genuine about those new licenses being actually essential, which the government claims they are. The problem is they're not essential. That much is obvious. It's a statement going out there, and it's a political statement. It has nothing to do with energy. None of these things will yield any real fuel in the immediate future. You know, we're talking about many, many years down the line. Um, but what the government is doing is issuing a statement about green crap. It's basically telling people that that lot over there, they will saddle you with loads of green debt. And we're not uh, ideological like that. We're practical people and we're going to, uh, uh, you know, l make motorist friendly policies. Wasn't that Sunak's phrase? <laughs> um, you know, while half the country is underwater. It's, so, is it just the new fracking, basically? Yeah. Is he going to get past the Lords? As Lord Sack Goldsmith of Richmond Park is bound to be upset about this. I don't know that it will. There is some opposition to it, like Zach Goldsmith resigned over this, not this piece of legislation, but the more general sort of stance change of Sunak towards net zero, um, as did Lord Debon, by the way, who will be a, an as fierce an opponent in the Lords. And he used to be, he used to be the chair of the, the net zero transition committee. Um, the, the defining line seems to be for the Lords very often whether something was in the manifesto, because they're, they're they will be much shyer to oppose a policy that has been voted on by people, as it were. But this wasn't in the manifesto. In fact, you could say it's contrary to what mm. was in the yeah, manifesto. Definitely. And so I, my sense is that they'll be spoiling for a fight on this, mm. especially considering there's not enough time to use the Parliament Act. But there's not literally not enough legislative time to force it through before the next and general election before the next general election and mm. so i think there will also be an element in the lords that that thinks this is a this is a sort of scorched earth policy by one government because it knows it will probably be out at the next election therefore let's delay it and if the next government wants to do it you know or if they get reelected they can go for it which it may not want to do because Labour isn't backing the oil bill. Hannah, the government argues that North oil and gas means that we'll never have to rely on Russian gas again. Does Sunak have a point about this? And are we going to use this energy ourselves or is the plan actually to flog it abroad? So he's got a little bit of a point with about 500 caveats. So it sounds counterintuitive, but using homegrown oil and gas, gas would actually reduce our emissions, albeit by much more marginally than the government likes to claim it would. Mm -hmm. It's a very marginal gain. And obviously, they're very excited about the 200,000 jobs that might come with this, the tax take that comes with that. They're budgeting for that. I don't think that's an insignificant part of the motivation for going through this. But as you rightly point out with your second question, it, this would, it wouldn't be possible to say, right, we're going to use our homegrown oil and gas for ourselves to reduce our reliance on others. It would be sold on an international market and they obfuscate on that. They don't make it clear that it's not as simple as source it and use it. It's not their it's gas. Not. It's not their right. oil. So it's the companies. You can't you can't <laughs> simply claim, well, we, we're going to make ourselves reliant when the market doesn't work in that way. 
the big point for me is that, you know, we're an island, obviously, with a fantastic resource in wind and sea power. Uh, there are renewable ways to ensure that we are energy self-sufficient, um, and that that itself in itself is a very sensible goal. I don't think it's wrong to raise the threat of Russia and so on. It is an important geopolitical point that we need to become more self-sufficient with our energy security. Um, but the problem is the government is just unwilling to unlock all that resource rapidly enough. It just won't put the money in to secure that investment. How much of this is a distraction from our crap, energy-guzzling, badly insulated homes? We do have badly insulated homes, but that needn't hold us back anywhere near as much as it is doing. Uh, So there was a Nesta report this week, actually, that found that insulation doesn't always make as much financial sense as an investment as other things for your home. So you actually don't need really good insulation to get a heat pump in and and to replace your boiler, and a heat pump would would definitely save you some money, not loads right now, I'll come to that in a minute, uh, but would nevertheless do great things for progress towards net zero and your own personal emissions if you if it's something you're motivated by. Our insulation is not a barrier to that, although everyone still thinks it is. We love to rely on the fact that we're badly insulated to, as an excuse, Well, we shouldn't. It's definitely a distraction from our failure as a country to deal with the high cost of electricity. So at the moment, there are tons of levies and taxes and all kinds of uh, surcharges attached to electricity that gas doesn't have attached. And any government serious about net zero, any of this stuff, sustainability, should be focusing on the cost of bringing down electricity. Because at the moment, it doesn't make as much financial sense as it should to install an electricity run heat pump in your home, for example, instead of having a gas-guzzling boiler. Or indeed to, you know, run an EV. Run an EV, yeah, yeah, all of those things. Yeah. Alex, we're seeing a real divergence now between the UK and the EU and the US because they're investing heavily in renewables and we're not. Even though we don't have a bad record on this in the past, we've actually moved away from coal pretty quickly compared to, say, Germany. Is Sunak looking at the backlash in Germany, for example, against installing new heat pumps, which is, you know, really threatening the government, the level of anger. Has he taken fright from that? No, No. (laughs) is the answer. I mean, you know, Sunak, is he strategically looking at what's going on in (laughs) Germany and deciding what his policy is going to be? No, he falls from policy position to policy position as he relaunches his leadership every two weeks (laughs) to try and find something that works with both his centrist backbenchers and his right-wing backbenchers and the public. And he has so far been unable to find that magic policy. Mm. So, no, I, they are, the two are part of the same pattern, for sure. But no, they're not, they're not uh, linked. What you're seeing in both is a sort of cross-party consensus breaking down, which was there, actually, mm probably until about five, six years ago, there was a cross-party consensus that let's not attack each other on these issues. We we all agree that this needs doing. We all agree that this is a, an urgent situation. But then you get, in Germany at least, there is the excuse that you have the sort of outsider populist uh, people like Alternative for Deutschland, who are making these grandiose statements which they will never have to deliver, basically. So they're acting as populists. In the UK, there's no such excuse. You know, you you have people in a party 
who was elected on a net zero platform. That was part of Johnson's big thing. You know, that was what we did at COP26. We went there and said, we'll be leaders in the world on this. And now we're backtracking from this and we've lost that moral leadership. So it's bad. It's just bad. Hannah, last year the government made it easier to get planning permission for onshore wind farms, and yet there are no new applications for wind turbines. Why? <laughs> Shock horror. <laughs> well, the main reason is that, well, first of all, we were really late to this. They initially talked about banning onshore wind and then suddenly want to make it easier because they've realised that's a disaster. <laughs> so there's there's a mood music issue here. But also there's much better subsidised investment schemes elsewhere in very close Europe, in you know France, Spain, Germany and so on. So... If you are a company who wants to invest and put down a, a, a large, you know, business proposition on onshore wind, you are not going to do it in the UK, even with this new scheme. It's it's rubbish by comparison. You know, we've spent ages bickering with the EU, basically wanting nothing to do with Europe. And additionally, and more importantly, now recently turning away from net zero pledges and the target for 2050. What's that going to do? Even if the, the policies are actually in place to make something happen in the UK, the general culture mood is we're not interested. So yep. people are going to be going to look elsewhere. Yep. Why are they shocked by this? Oh, they're so stupid. It makes yeah. me really I mean, frustrated. Yeah. Companies need stability yeah. to invest. They need to Vibes know that the policy is not going to yeah. change tomorrow. And they're mm. getting the opposite. Can I also say... Absolutely hilarious and emblematic of the situation. Jeremy Hunt, that very chancellor that stood at the dispatch box and told us new drilling licenses are absolutely essential, that we need more of our own fuel, energy security, all of that, but also that, you know, planning NIMBYs were holding this country back and were responsible for our sluggish growth. He is livid that something is happening in his constituency, <laughs> that Loxley is planning a new gas well outside <sighs> Dunsfold. He's, after years of appeals, have been uh, basically exhausted. They just lost at the Court of Appeal their final appeal, denied appeal to the Supreme Court, and he's put out this letter going, I am bitterly disappointed to learn that the Court oh, of Appeal, etc. And I, it? that is fucking pathological, right? The actual Chancellor that says, we need more of this, and then goes, no, 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 not in my constituency. But Jeremy, think of the jobs. The jobs. <sighs> uh, just uh, so we don't end on an entirely negative note, the hope on the horizon. Labour's 28 billion commitment to a green energy plan, the one that feels like it's being watered down through anonymous briefing every <laughs> single week. How important is it that Labour keeps this? Well, I think it's very important. You know, we've got the situation, obviously, it's, it's, it's almost... Um, very stupid to say it, but I'm going to say it again because it's necessary. They are hamstrung by the age of their base in the way that Labour isn't. There was a King's College London study by Bobby Duffy, who does great work, he's always worth looking up, that found that half of the UK electorate say that climate change is causing harm at home now or will do so in the coming decade. So half, that's not even asking if doing net zero is the right thing to do. That's asking, it's more personal that. It's yeah. asking, do you think that the damage is happening now because of climate change? Half of the UK electorate say yes. That's, you know, if, if Labour forget that 
and keep mm. chasing this tiny percentage yeah. of diehard Tories. So it's very important that they keep it. Which and I, I don't think, think is the direction no, of travel, by the way. I Last agree. weekend, I saw actually a hardening of their rhetoric. So there had been a little bit of this vacillating and backtracking. But last weekend, Starmer um, gave a series of interviews and he was like, if that's the argument you want to have, come and have a go. Mm. His language seemed to harden. They've been briefing out loads of financial stuff saying, showing that this will cost actually a marginal amount once you take all the positives into account. And they seem to want actually to have a fight on this. They seem to want this to be a dividing line. Well, I do think they've hopefully worked out that the evidence shows that there is so little to win on it. There's no point, yeah, using yeah. this area to kind of fight fight on the same turf. Perhaps yeah. it was visiting I, I, flood hit areas that concentrated the mines. Yeah, yeah. maybe. It's the end of the show, so it's time for the stories that went under the radar this week. Alex, what is yours? My story is about uh, the new French Prime Minister, Gabriel Attal. Oh, yes. Appointed by So um, young, so Macron, handsome. Um, <laughs> a couple of days ago um, to replace the beleaguered Prime Minister that seemed to have lost the sort of charge of the party and uh, and Parliament. Um, now, Gabriel Attal is France's youngest post-war Prime Minister. He's only 34, a mere baby. Makes me feel very, very old. What have I done? <laughs> Same age as He's Taylor Prime Swift. Minister at 34. What have I done? <laughs> anyway, um, and uh, he's openly gay, or as Chris Bryant um, pointed on uh, Twitter earlier, gay. <laughs> Since there's no such thing as non-openly gay, really, in, a, in an advanced Western democracy anymore, we mustn't make that distinction, I think. Um, you're either gay or you're not. I kind of like what that says. It seems to me that there were other people to go for if Macron wasn't going to lean into a culture war fight mm. with a far right. He's been very good at challenging and taking yeah. on the far right in the and past. I think, and I think this seems to me like a statement of intent of him leaning into that culture war and saying, you know. He does, you know. Screw look, you. Look, amusingly <laughs> like a small version of Macron. It's like, it's you, Macron. <laughs> he really does. <laughs> like a small version of Macron. Macron is tiny. Yeah, well, there was a picture only this week of him standing behind like him and looking at him. Thinking, and you could see, you know, there was the, the, the undertone was... Yeah. I'm coming for you, Emmanuel. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, he can't serve a third term, so no. someone's coming for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So pre president at 37, maybe that would be exciting. Oh, yes. Gay 37-year-old president. My, my, um, my dream of someday becoming first lady of a, <laughs> of a leading Western democracy is still, still alive. <laughs> I think there are some French politicians who might literally explode. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah, what is yours? So the Office for National Statistics is consulting on a plan at the moment to drop its annual bulletin, which records uh, mortality rates for homeless people. The last... Um, published one of this was from 2021, which revealed 471 deaths. 
the campaigners have called it callous and various other palatable words. I've got another word for it. It's bullshit. It's covering <laughs> up the brutal impact of bad housing policy by just going, oh, nothing to see here. And it really reminds me. It's just like the child poverty statistics in that sense. You know, get rid of the statistics and the problem just disappears from view. You can't report on it. You can't talk about it in ways that are accountable. Um, and, you know, if you combine this, I know it's the ONS consulting. It is, a still, it is still an arm of government. It's important to point that out. Um, combined with the kind of bad tense stuff, ban the tents, they're terrible, they're messing up our roads, look at this terrible eyesore that is people who ha simply cannot find anywhere else to live. If you add that to it before Christmas, it just shows such a cruel disregard of people who are suffering the most from bad policymaking over decades. And oh, so frustrating to watch. Are there no workhouses, etc. <laughs> well, I was uh, struck by uh, a quite interesting interview with a guy called Enrico Letta, who you might have heard of. He was Prime Minister of Italy, albeit for not very long, just a year or so, quite a decade or so ago. And he's coming up with uh, some reforms to the single market. Now, I know everyone's going to be very excited about reforms to the single market, but, but if you're interested in the EU, and I know a lot of our listeners are, you should be, because what he's saying and suggesting is that freedom of movement might have to be in some ways restricted in the EU. Um, in what ways precisely and how, he doesn't really say. But he he is particularly angsty about countries which have seen big outflows like um, Poland, for example, like Italy. And he's worried uh, about the effect that has had on domestic politics. There is a line of thought in the EU that says that the one of the reasons that Poland was able to do turn to the right, as it know, did was because a lot of the most liberal people and those forward-thinking people in Poland left. So he's talking about something called freedom to stay. Now, I'm not sure I like this phrase until it's been fully interrogated and explained to me, but it's an interesting trend and it's worth watching. Uh, that's it for this week. Thanks to Hannah Fern. Thank you. And Alexandre. My pleasure. Stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our army of generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. Search Oh God What Now Patreon to find out how to get yours. We'll see you next time. Hello and best wishes to Damon Wilson, Appban and Deborah Miller. Welcome aboard and many thanks from me for your support to Christine Dowling, Zravya and Cyril Syrat. And from me, hello and welcome to Brenda Scotton and two returning patrons who've come back to the fold. Like sheep. Except not like sheep, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Ian Shell McLeod, Adam Sutcliffe. We'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now is presented by Ross Taylor with Alex Andreu and Hannah Fern. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Chris Jones, Simon Williams, and for the anti-penultimate time, me, Alex Reese. Socials by Jess Harpin and Mike Bollin. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the extra bit for Patreon backers. 
Next Monday is allegedly the most depressing day of the year, although obviously that was just a marketing ploy to get you to book your summer holiday. (laughs) It's going to be a sad week for us at Podmasters as one of our veteran producers, Alex, who's worked on Oh God, What Now? since it was Romaniacs, is leaving us for the world of true crime podcasts. Personally, I don't mind January too much, provided that it's sunny. But when the grey clouds and icy pavements kick in, my mood drops by about 20 degrees. And the only decent poem about January is R.S. Thomas's one about a wounded fox dragging itself over snow. (laughs) Which is a fine work, but on the miserable side. Yeah, think. (laughs) Do you know it, Alex? No. It's good. It's very short. Only two verses. It's good. Yeah, Yeah, I do recommend it. It's, it's, it's It's very timely. Hannah, I understand some people like to light candles in January and pretend that they're in Sweden or do that <laughs> thing called here that I can't pronounce properly. Hugo, yes. Do you do that? Uh, yes. I do like a candle in the fireplace and a rug on the sofa. Mainly I just drink more red wine in January, I think. <laughs> All of this thing about dry January. No January for you. Absolutely not. In fact, 2024 is the year I'm getting back on the sauce after seven years of pregnancy and breastfeeding, and I am enjoying it. <laughs> the red wine is flowing in my house at the moment. I probably eat more rubbish as well and watch more rubbish on TV. But, um, yeah, I can't be bothered with any sort of particular strategy to get through it. I don't love freezing cold winter it's not my favorite I one year I went to uh, Australia for Feb for the whole month of February and I have to say that did improve my mental health for the entire year just going away when it was absolutely dark and depressing and coming back at the beginning of March when you can see the blossoms coming out and the start of the spring just it actually did really help can't afford to do that every year so you just got to power through I you know um try not to be too miserable and just drink your way through <laughs> that's my advice everyone <laughs> That was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you like a little bit more Oh Good What Now every week without ads and a day early, then do yourself a favour and sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast Oh God What Else every Monday morning and some merchandise. Thanks for listening and see you next week. <laughs>